1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Nicholas Morton. Nicholas is an associate professor at Nottingham Trent University, where he teaches, researches, and publishes on the history of the Crusades and the medieval Near East between the 10th and 14th centuries. His book, The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East, was published earlier this year by Basic Books. And that's what we'll we'll be discussing today. So thank you so much, Nicholas, for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me on the show.
1: So something I found really interesting about your approach to this topic is that it's not a history of the Mongols per se, but rather you sort of illuminate the larger medieval world around and within the Mongol Empire and show the broader impact of the Mongols on the history and culture and geopolitics of the medieval Near East and how people on the kind of Western periphery of the Mongol Empire reacted to and perceived Mongol encroachment and conquest. So why did you decide to approach the story in this way?
0: Sure. Um my 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 approach to the whole book is I really wanted to bring out not just an individual civilization or the interests of a particular people group or ethnic group or religion, but I felt that it's the totality that's important. It's the interaction, it's the the sheer extent to which I mean you've got civilizations of multiple different faiths and from very different um, backgrounds and they're all interacting with each other furiously and they're selling things to each other and they're learning from each other and in some cases they're marrying with each other and they're making friends with each other and they're fighting and hate each other and they're doing it all in a very, very narrow geographical space. And that's before the Mongols arrive. And so it's just the sheer complexity of it all and just how fascinating it is, Uh, almost from a sort of people-watching perspective, just to see how people behave when they're placed in that kind of environment. And there are so many really rich stories and accounts of what's going on. Some of them are fascinating and wonderful. Some of them are awful and terrible, but they all shed a light on how human beings behave in very different contexts and how they cope with people who are very different to themselves, whatever form that difference takes. And I think that that shines a light on all so many issues, not just of importance to the medieval period, but a perennial interest about the, the basics of human behaviour, how we construct our own identity, how we project identities onto other people, what we take from other people and what we don't take from other people, and how we cope with change and, in this case, Existential crisis as the entirety of the Near East has to work out what it's going to do about the advent of the Mongol armies.
1: And so you um, brought up the accounts um, that we have of this period. Um, So, can you talk a little bit about the sources that you used? Um, What are some of those written accounts of this period of the Mongols and of the Mongol conquest, specifically? Sort of, what did they, uh, or I guess, what are the Kind of contents um, and how are they written um, how do you sort of deal with biases of authors when you're trying to pull this history together
0: sure um, I mean the simple answer to that is uh, and part of the reason this project took so long is that I tried to try to read or engage with as wide a range of source of sources as I possibly could so that can be anything from Italian shipping contracts to histories by Persian authors from this period, uh, sources in Greek written by the Byzantine uh, bureaucracy, or accounts written by Crusaders, or Muslim intellectuals, either from this period or from a later period. So I really did try and engage with as broad a set of materials as I possibly could. Um, How I deal with biases, in a sense, um, (laughs) is... uh, I find I I try to work with them in a sense in that I'm not trying to necessarily trying to counteract them I'm trying to use them because I want to understand how people approached the various issues or or um, agendas of their day and so whilst we might have to sort of think well certain persons writing from a certain bias we have to take that into account when Understanding these events well, actually, in my case, I want to know what that bias is because that bias will often be very, very close to their perspective on those events and how they deal with those events and how they respond emotionally, spiritually, personally, and perhaps even as a community to those events. So you can learn a great deal from someone's perspective about how they respond to the to all to upcoming events, and it's so it's that that I was working with really.
1: Mm. Um, and so. <sighs> Uh, so the sources that you're using are not primarily created by the Mongols themselves, correct? Um so or can you talk so can you talk a little bit about the kind of identity of the authors? Um, like their maybe Kind of education, their backgrounds, the languages that they were writing in, uh, what purpose that they were creating kind of documentation of the Mongol conquests for. Were they writing them for, you know, were they commissioned by a courtly kind of patron? Um, Were they writing for a kind of public audience? Were they just writing for historical record?
0: Sure. So we do have some accounts not written by the Mongols themselves per se, but written by courtiers within the Mongol court, not themselves from a Mongol background, but writing for the Mongols. And I find their perspectives fascinating because they illuminate a process that is—it comes across very clearly in the sources, um, the sources I'm talking about here are mostly Persian sources, but sources from other um, cultures as well, which is that they write very positively about the Mongols. They talk about how the Mongols... Brought justice to the region in some cases, or how the Mongols were um, God's will for the region because they had they called out the people on their sins and they said, We're going to reform this, reform the area and make it into a more perfect manifestation of whoever the religion is that they're writing about. Which, in many of the Persian histories, is Islam, but you do get similar kinds of messages in some of the Christian sources for the period as well. And I find that very interesting because it illuminates a power dynamic, because when the Mongols invaded the Near East, which is the area I'm most concerned with, there's no stopping them. No no one's meaningfully able to put up military resistance, at least not for the first 40 years. And at that time, at least, there's no particular reason why anyone should doubt that the Mongols will go on to rule the entire planet, which is what they are trying to do. So what do you do in that environment? Well, we're encouraged perhaps in modern day fiction or modern narratives to say, well, if you face tyranny, you should stand up and resist it. Well, in fact, in history, that very rarely happens. In my experience, resistance, rebellion, civil war of that kind normally occurs when the the conqueror's grip is weakening, not when it's at its strongest, because there's no hope of resistance. And so what you've got is you do have these writers writing tremendously nice things about the Mongols, talking about fitting them into their spiritual thought worlds, fitting them into their theology, saying things that would be very pleasing in the ears of their Mongol masters, perhaps even trying to steer them to adopt more of their cultural, more of their religious identity. And the Mongols, of course, in the Near East do convert during the course of the 13th century. And they convert to Islam, but there's lots of other attempts to convert them to other religions as well. So this is, in a sense, what I mean by working with the biases in the sources, in that you can see in their attempts to win favour with the Mongols, who of course have conquered and they haven't been gentle about it, the entire region, they're trying to win favour with the Mongols because they can't resist them. So they have to work with them. And if you work with them closely enough, then perhaps you can begin to steer them. And I think that's what we're seeing in the sources, and that makes them... Really fascinating. Hmm.
1: And so you brought up religion um, and the sort of religious identity of the Mongols. And one of the interesting points that I thought you made in your book is that the Mongols perceived themselves as having this kind of heavenly mandate to conquer the world, as you sort of just put it. Um, and that that is part of what underlaid their sort of extreme success, uh, is that their drive to conquer all of this territory was a kind of religiously motivated one so how does that then align with the eventual conversion of the mongols to islam in the territories of the near east that they conquered how do we see the how do we see their kind of religious identity shifting and then how does their kind of self-identity um and kind of self-image as kind of conquerors um in this kind of divinely inspired sense, how does that shift
0: with the conversion to Islam? Sure. Um, so, of course, in the Near East, the Mongols convert to Islam, but in other regions, if, for example, China, they convert to uh, to Buddhism among, um, among other faiths too. So it's, it, it depends on the region. But in this one, um, in the Near East, it's interesting because as the Mongols begin to convert, they don't just convert wholesale and overnight overnight they convert to Islam, but there are still elements of their former beliefs, their former identity, and so the notion of the importance, the spiritual importance of Chinggis Khan and the descendants of Chinggis Khan, and his spiritual mandate, that remains for a long time, alongside um, Islamic uh, Islamic identity and theology that they have also taken on. So there is a a long crossover period, and in fact uh, the influence of the sort of the long-standing Mongol beliefs about their purpose their mission the importance of Chinggis Khan that continues for a very much very much longer period than covered in the book so it's 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 a, it's a it's a, gradu- it's, it's a gradual movement there are sort of important moments but it's not something that happens overnight and long periods remain when they can continue to maintain um, the beliefs of um, their forefathers mm. uh,
1: and so You know, the Mongols are seen as just like one of many steppe peoples who kind of emerged from Central Asia to terrorize the West, um, like, you know, in the sort of mold of the Huns or the Scythians or the Timurids. Um, But I think, you know, the Mongols are certainly i think the most successful instance of such a people in terms of building of you know in terms of sort of sheer kind of territorial expanse in terms of building an empire in terms of adapting um their rule to the kind of local conditions and then i think they also sort of have left behind the longest legacy with these very you know very long-lasting resonances of the kind of fearsome Mongol hordes that really echo, I think, into the present day. Um, so why do you think that that is? You know, how, how can we explain the sort of profound success, like in their own time, but also the lasting influence of the Mongols? Was it just like a case of kind of right place, right time? Or what do you, like, is there, what's the like secret ingredient
0: Sure. Um, You're absolutely right. So 200 years before the Mongols, it was the Seljuk Turks who came out of the Central Asian steppe and conquered actually a very similar region to that conquered by the Mongols in the Near East, at least. And in fact, it's the, the Seljuk Turks who increasingly research is beginning to suggest. And because they had conquered a similar region, because they had a similar cultural background to the Mongols, and they converted to Islam about a century or so before the Mongols did, they provided a very natural template for the Mongols to follow in their own conversion. But sticking to um, your point about the impact of this and why they were so successful, and I think you're right, these two things are linked. The first is the sheer scale of the Mongol Empire. Uh, It it is, to some extent, their belief that they have this right to global conquest that adds a degree to their abilities as conquerors. It's partly their willingness to learn and to acquire information and technology and personnel from the people they've conquered, and then make use of them and weld them into their machine of conquest, which makes them that much more powerful. And then, of course, there is also the um, the, the, the the upward cycle of victory leading to victory. Once you've won half a dozen times, everyone's expecting you to win, including your future enemies, which makes it that much more powerful. So with the Mongols conquering so much of Asia, suddenly that means that the Mongol Empire embraces regions like, well, from the Pacific seaboard all the way across to the borders of Hungary and Poland. No one's ever done that before. And so these these factors behind the Mongols' success create this massive zone. And within this zone, for periods at least, because it's not consistent, the Mongols do fight amongst themselves, there are rebellions from time to time, but there are opportunities when suddenly travelers and merchants, and in some cases, missionaries or religious leaders, can uh, cover enormous distances and see fundamentally new spaces, experience things that no one from their civilization had experienced before. And so, suddenly, people's knowledge horizons are being pushed back as a result of their negotiations or trade or diplomacy with the Mongol Empire. And it's the same for the Mongols themselves. They're sending emissaries out to places as distant and unknown and beyond the horizon as the Kingdom of France and England. I mean, who's heard of them before, as far as they're concerned? So they're they're learning the whole time. Everyone's learning. And that's what makes it so fascinating. But it's also, I think, the knowledge exchange. Because it's in this era that you have the advent of technologies like the stern rudder, or... The um, Maritime Compass, which will go on to have a profound effect on maritime exploration and other major phenomena of later centuries, and also, perhaps most significantly, the arrival of gunpowder, which, needless to say, will transform the Mediterranean region and Western Christendom from this period onwards, not just on a military plane. Gunpowder affects everything in terms of how societies are operated, how they're taxed, how they're set up, the impact of war, across so many different zones of experience. Now, previously, gunpowder had been primarily, or almost solely, um, a, um, a technology used by the Chinese, and they developed it considerably. It's possible that the Muslim world also had access to gunpowder or had developed gunpowder as well. But there seems little doubt that there is something in the advent of the Mongol Empire that makes this technology (laughs) literally explode. Um, So yes, for me at least, it's that connectedness that the Mongol Empire brings and the sheer quantity of things, ideas, goods, trade goods, ideas, people, uh, religions, that gets passed along these trades, and increasingly research is suggesting that the Black Death was also carried within this system as well and i don 't need to explain the profound impact of that on the entirety of the continent and, and as well as parts of Africa as well. Mm. Interesting, uh,
1: and so I think you know we tend to we do give the Mongols a lot of credit for facilitating this kind of cross cultural exchange, but uh, so what did the Mongols themselves bring to this dynamic or to this kind of melting pot? You know, what were the elements of Mongol kind of culture and society? And here, what I'm sort of trying to get at without maybe asking this question directly is what was the effect or the kind of impact of the nomadic background of the Mongols in kind of facilitating their conquests and then how did their how did that background and how did that kind of lifestyle change um, as their conquests um Escalated, you know, and as they move from the position of being conquerors to being rulers. Does that question make sure. sense?
0: It does, yeah. So, I mean, traditionally, nomadic societies have had very substantial strengths, particularly in warfare, because um, children in these societies are raised from a very early age to ride and shoot and endure long journeys and distances. And these are all things that have military applications, and so they do help to facilitate the Mongols' conquests alongside the Mongols' other advantages as well. So those are perhaps facilitating factors. But once the Mongols have conducted their invasions, I mean, for me, I've never quite managed to get over some of these descriptions uh, of of Mongol cities, because you have a Mongol capital in Karakorum, I and this is a traditional city with fixed dwellings and a and a and a rampart around its walls, but that's not really the center point. That's, these aren't really the, sort of the main feature of Mongol civilization. What you've got is they're enormous wagon cities, thousands of wagons, and alongside the wagons you've got then got thousands of tents. And alongside the tents, you've then got millions of animals. And you talk about, um, you hear about envoys and emissaries saying that they could travel for several days across these vast encampment cities without reaching the other end. And it's just a spectacle we've lost in the modern day. We don't have this. And it, it, it boggles the mind, really, because you just think, what must this have looked like? And some of these tents, these aren't sort of tiny little tents for an individual family. Some of them could accommodate thousands of people. And they're made out of the best textiles, because, of course, as the Mongols conquer Eurasia, they liquefy huge amounts of wealth from the courts of the formerly mighty, which they can then spend themselves. And they want to spend it. And so the things they want and the things that they deem important are the things that get sold and which traders very quickly realise are the things they're going to be able to um, to trade so Mongol civilization, it starts with its with with the with sort of the traditional template of encampments with tents and wagons, etc. But as the Mongol Empire prospers, as it increasingly does well, as it grows and becomes so much richer, it can afford to embellish on this until suddenly they're using things like gold nails to make their tents and they're dressed in You hear about some Mongols wearing or Mongol leaders wearing clothes which have pearls from head to toe because they can afford it. And so suddenly the economy and all the the commercial routes of the entire continent and further afield suddenly realign themselves around these massive tent cities because that's where the money is. That's where the merchants are too. And so in a sense, I'm not sure how much this answers your question, but I think you have this meeting point. The Mongols remain, for the most part, or at least research seems to suggest they remained largely nomadic in their way of life. And yet, this is not the nomadic way of life of their, of their sort of of former generations. I I I, I rather I rather sort of uh, offhandedly call it imperial, the imperial nomadic lifestyle, because then their 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 tent cities are no longer the focus, such just for their their own people or for their flocks and herds but for multiple civilizations, all of whom are looking for direction to these massive tent cities with their great gold tents and their jewel-encrusted clothing. And you even hear about Mongol um, courts having different colors of clothing um, for every day of the week because they can. So why wouldn't you?
1: Hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah, that's a very evocative picture of what um, these tent cities must have been like, which, yeah, it's so hard to imagine, and it's such a kind of shame um, that they don't exist, can't have, you know, can't exist in a form where you could still experience them today, except, you know, there are a handful of images and manuscript paintings that I think do not even come close to replicating kind of what the full effect of these places must have been. Um, But on the other hand, it doesn't seem, this kind of model of rule doesn't seem that different to me from a kind of more traditional European style of kingship where you would also have, you know, where the ruler would also travel between his or her castles and kind of constantly stay in touch with different areas of their kingdom and of course sort of the trappings of warfare and you know the tents of war the kind of mobility of the military encampment that were you know accustomed to from other contexts i think that's not it's not that dissimilar right or how do you see that
0: in a, in a sense, you're absolutely right. When I mean, you've got the sort of the standard peripatetic court of of say medieval Christendom, they're not travelling with their flocks and herds. Of course, or not, or not not very many. But you're right. There is there is movement in that. I think that the thing that most struck visitors reaching these courts is firstly their, their sheer scale. That, that there's no court in um, West, Western Christendom, for example, that comes anything like. The Mongol court for sheer purchasing power, or military heft, or commercial influence, or just the sheer ability just to influence and impress—it's—it's—it's it's the, it's the sheer magnitude of it that um, they find astonishing. But of course, the whole thing, the whole the whole court—it's, um, it's it's tied together by a very different set of values and a very different sort of way of thinking about and conceiving the world, conceiving of religion, and so in a sense. Yes, the, the moving around that that that's similar, but the the intellectual life, the cultural life, the value systems, the morality systems, the religious systems that knit all this together, these are very different. And it's so it is so fascinating to see people like Armenian emissaries or envoys from Mamluk Egypt or Franciscan friars going to these courts, and then just how they try and work with them and understand them and and try try and try and work within those systems but bringing of course within the context of their own network of ideas and beliefs
1: Mm. and so on the topic of nomads um i really appreciated how you discussed the role of non-mongol nomads in this history as well and you write about other nomadic peoples or, you know, peoples within, um, the other empires, which the Mongols invaded or attempted to invade. So like the Kurds and Turkmen's in Anatolia, um, the Bedouin, um, in Mesopotamia and the Levant in Egypt. So can you talk a little bit about that and about the kind of the non-Mongol nomadic peoples who also play a role in this story, but whose kind of contributions tend to be overlooked?
0: Yeah. And I think this is a really important point, because, of course, if you, if you study, if you focus purely on the Mongols, these people might come up, but actually they're not the focus. But what I wanted to do by, by sort of almost doing a, a kind of regional history, in a sense, in, in this book, is to draw these people out, because in many cases, these are displaced communities who are trying to get out of the Mongols' way. And sometimes they move in groups you no know, larger than a few families, and sometimes they're moving in groups of up to of tens of thousands. And these, these groups on the move, trying to get away from the Mongols, trying to find a new place to call home. These people are responsible for enormous change in the Near East, not just in the areas the Mongols conquered, but in much further afield as well. And so you have Turkmen tribes coming down um, from the north towards um, Constantinople or the Latin Empire of Constantinople as it was then, trying to get away from the Mongols, and they and large numbers move into Kingdom of Hungary as well. Turkmen tribes moving west through Syria, north of the Syrian desert, into the coastal regions of the Near East, and again they're trying to get away from the Mongols, and here too they significantly affect the balance of power. In fact, I would say one of the key reasons for the collapse of the crusader states is the sheer pressure exerted mm. by various turkmen tribes on the frontiers of the crusader states and the crusader states try and accommodate some of these um, turkmen groups by offering them grazing and things but it doesn't it just doesn't seem to have been enough and so there's a lot of a lot of conflict that breaks out on that frontier and it is a substantial reason in for example the decline of the principality of antioch in the 1250s or the very embattled nature of the Kingdom of Jerusalem from the 1240s pretty much to their end. And many of these groups also, as you say, move into Anatolia, where they swell the ranks of many Turkmen groups who are already there, and that in in its turn helps to explain uh, key phenomena such as the rise of the Turkmen Beyliks in Anatolia, one of which, of course, will go on to be the Ottoman Empire, and indeed the collapse of the Byzantine frontier in Anatolia, which in turn will play its part in the ongoing decline of the Byzantine Empire through this period. So the role of displaced peoples is enormous, particularly displaced nomadic peoples. Some civilizations benefit considerably from these groups arriving in their borders, and the Mamluk Empire seems to have... um, enrolled a great many in their armies. So it's interesting to see how they they change the balance of power. And in a similar vein, um, we hear about other groups, for example, silk workers from Mosul who fled in advance of the Mongols and ended up in the Kingdom of Jerusalem where they set up a silk emporium and started to trade in silk, which, of course, changes the commercial face to some extent of the Kingdom of Jerusalem itself. So there's all sorts of different interactions and impacts some of which will have been deemed positive by some civilizations, some as negative, but it's it's the totality. It's the evolving of the ecosystem that is perhaps so fascinating here.
1: Hmm. And so this might this question might be a little outside of your area of expertise, but I'm just curious, what's the environmental impact of all of this? You know, like I study pastoral nomadism. And so one of the sort of main or one of the most important factors um, is the availability of grazing land, the availability of water. And so as a result, you know, pastoral nomadism is actually much more kind of restrained and confined than we tend to imagine and is really dependent on kind of certain ecological zones and certain ecological conditions. And so I'm just imagining, you know, with this displacement and kind of large scale shifts of nomadic peoples, the sort of environmental imbalances that might occur, not to mention sort of the environmental impacts of War devastation, like you said, the migrations of other peoples for other reasons across this region, sort of in mass. Do you have a sense of what the kind of effect on the environment and the landscape was of this history?
0: Yes, indeed, it's it's a vital factor um, because the des- suddenly the best pasture land becomes it's always been desirable. Now it becomes very desirable. And so areas like parts of Azerbaijan and the Caucasus, parts of eastern and central Anatolia, there's really good grazing there. And so that becomes a particular objective for the Mongols and a particular focus for several conflicts as the Mongols make very sure that they've got control of that land themselves because it's what they really want. Uh, top, really good quality grazing land that they can that can form part of their annual migrations around the borders of the Mongol Empire. Now, of course, it's a a long-standing argument that a key factor that defined the perimeter of the Mongol Empire is that they could only expand so far as they could graze their flocks and herds. And so the argument's been made that it's the deciduous forests of Western Christendom that prevented much more sort of invasion or conquest in that direction. It's the tropical regions of Southeast Asia that prevented further invasion in that region. In the Near East, we hear similar things. So, for example, uh, in the long, uh, the long and ongoing war between the Mamluk Empire of Egypt and Syria and the Mongols, which began in 1260 and lasted until 1323, in 1299, the Mongols score their, their first and really only major victory over the Mamluks, following which they then advance and take Damascus. Now, this is enormously threatening for the Mamluks, and yet the Mongols leave voluntarily not being forced, within a few months of arriving. Now there are several reasons that can be suggested for that. Um, one commentator linked to the Knights Templar observed that they simply couldn't find enough grazing around Damascus and had to leave. So that there are other arguments that could be advanced too. But it's interesting to see that a contemporary um, a contemporary um, observer made that link so explicitly. And then, of course, there are all sorts of things that people trying to either fend off the Mongols or fend off other nomadic peoples do in this era in order to try and hold them back by using a sort of, you could call it an environmental approach. And so we hear about people ploughing up the lands outside Baghdad simply because they want to deny them to grazing animals. We hear about the Byzantines planting trees on grazing because, of course, it's easier to graze grassland than trees, so or woodland. so that would be another approach. And the Mamluks, the Mamluk Empire of Egypt and Syria, they actually had spe- special teams of burners whose job was to go around burning grassland. Again, because they know that if the Mongols can't graze their herds, the Mongols can't conquer. Now, there is a, no one doubts that this is, at least in some way, a factor for... Defining the perimeter of the Mongol invasions in the Near East. But there is a long standing debate about how important this was. Is it a factor among many or is it a clinching factor? Um, I'm afraid here I'm going to be a little bit wishy-washy and say that I'm not quite sure. I think it's somewhere between the two. I think it's important, but not the decisive factor.
1: Mm. Interesting. That's really interesting. I never heard some of those uh, examples of, yeah, what you call an environmental approach to trying to fend off the Mongols. And uh, that's fascinating. Um, so maybe as a final question, um, so your book ends around the 14th century um, with the fall of the Mongol Ilkhanate in the Near East. But what are what happens after that? You know, what are some of the lingering consequences or sort of effects of this
0: history? Sure. So in, after the um, after the co- Mongol conquest, which. Reach their culmination in about 1260. The Mongol Empire becomes consumed with civil war, and you've got the the breaking up of the Mongol Empire into its various different regions. The Ilkhanate in the Near East, the Golden Horde or just Horde in Western Eurasia, and then the um, Great Khans in China, among other um, parts of the empire. The empire breaks up in the Near East. Near East, the Ilkhanate continues um, for several decades at war with the Golden Horde and with the Mamluk Empire. It makes a peace with the Mamluks in 1323, but increasingly infighting within the Ilkhanate will eventually cause it to break up into various different regional groupings, and so the empire itself sort of falls apart and fragments. That remains the case until you've got the advent of... um, Timur in the late 14th century, who then brings on a new wave of what could be described as a new form of Mongol invasion into the region, but that sort of goes a little bit beyond the, the scope of the book. In terms of the lasting legacy of this, naturally there's a lot here for anyone interested in the ongoing relationship of nomadic and agricultural peoples. And the influence of one on the other, whatever form that may take, and the mergings and shiftings between the two, which of course is, is fascinating. In terms of the long standing impact, um, focusing on my book, and it's I would say that one of the one of the biggest impacts is just the sheer quantity of political change. Before the Mongols arrived, you've got the Anatolian Seljuks in eastern and central Anatolia, the Crusader states along the coast the ayyubids in syria and egypt the abbasid caliph caliphate in uh, around baghdad you know, these these territories are all conquered by the mongols and 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 by the end of this period they've all been overthrown and they don't come back so there is significant uh, change across the region and so it is the map of the Near East looks so fundamentally different in 1323 than when it does in, say, 1218. It's that enormous impact that is so important. I think that probably, probably, do see with the Mongols also a, a spread of, of nomadic civilization in this era, too, which may again change the balance in the way that regions operate and the balance of trade, and probably also a greater level of connectedness, too, as I've mentioned, with trade routes and greater knowledge of what lies beyond each society's knowledge horizon
1: could you see yourself writing a sequel to this book focusing on the timurids because i think you know as you pointed out they're quite linked so is that sort of the next chapter in this story
0: it's very tempting <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> okay well you don't have to commit to anything right now. Uh, but thank you so <laughs> much um, for you. joining me, for coming on um, to share your really encyclopedic knowledge of this history with us. Uh, I really enjoyed your book and I learned a lot from it. So thank you for writing it as well.
0: Thank you. Thank you.